Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. So confession time. At some churches, you know, you go to a, a you go to like a confessional booth, you know, you talk to a priest behind a screen and you tell them your sins. Here we actually reverse that. We have the pastor confess to you. It's a little bit more juicy, you know, makes this sermon a little bit more interesting. Uh, my wife is here. She is, I don't think she's heard this story of mine yet. And so I'm sure we'll have some conversations this afternoon. But uh, a little while ago, I was walking into a store with my daughters and it was like a grocery store. And this jerk in a black BMW came rolling around the corner and starts honking at everybody in the crosswalk. You know, the crosswalk like is outside the doors uh, going into the parking lot. Scared this poor old lady half to death. He then whips into this handicapped parking spot, no permit. Something rose up in me, like the fire. And so I did something stupid. I told my girls, I said, why don't you guys go hold hands, go up by the doors of the store and pay no mind to what daddy's going to do. I walk up to the guy in the BMW and I was like, what the heck is that? Like, poor old lady. And where are you parked right now? And he goes, what's it to you? <laughs> All right. So I pull out my keys out of my pocket like I was going to key his car. I was not going to key his car. I wasn't going to do it. But I just said, well, it's just really nice to know where you parked. Happy shopping. And he looked at me for a second and then got into his car and left to the cheering of people in the parking lot. Now, did, is Junior a hero? Probably. Uh, now actually, what's far more accurate is my girls watch daddy try to start something like a childish fool. And actually, I, I really do hate that they saw me be embarrassing. But what I saw, just like something rose up in me. It's like, I can't let this go. You know the feeling? That, that, that energy, it just rises up in you. It's like, this is not right. Maybe somebody says something about you and it kind of comes through the grapevine. You hear about it. It's like, that's totally false. That's the wrong story. I got to combat that. I got to set the record straight. I got to protect my reputation. Or somebody takes your sale. It's a big sale, big commission. Or somebody takes credit on that project. Or somebody posts something really stupid online and you think, well, I, I need to squash the stupid. I got to set the record straight. Or somebody bullies your child. Or somebody scares an old lady in the crosswalk. Like, what do we do? Do we seek justice? Or do we have mercy in that moment? There's some tension with that, isn't there? Do I have mercy here? Do I have we seek justice. It's like the, the old prophet Micah wrote, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy. Now we can look at that. We can think, okay, well, which one? Because we can't have both, right? To seek justice is to set aside mercy to get what's right. And so which one? And a lot of times people will look at and they'll think like, you know, well, I kind of, and it's true, you know, we lean one toward the other. I was, I was riding with my dad back from camp yesterday and he had said to me, he said, you know, Junior, like you and I, we tend to lead, lean more toward justice because that, this is what we do as people. We, either we have this natural tendency to just be a bit more merciful or no, we, we, need to, we need to do what's right. Jesus is about to tell us though that in this case, you can have your cake and eat it too. That the problem isn't that these two are diametrically opposed to each other. The problem is, is that our society has lost the definition of what mercy actually is. And it's a shame because when we misunderstand mercy, we greatly misunderstand our relationship with God and we misunderstand ourselves and how we relate to those around us. 
This might surprise you today. For many, if not all of us, today's word might be this massive recalibration as to how we're approaching relationships and teamwork and community in general. I hope you're up for the adventure because we're going to jump right into it. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're at. It's page 809 in the Bibles in the chairs. Otherwise, a lot of people use their phones or tablets. We have the Bridge app. A lot of notes today, by the way, a lot of, we're going to cover like a lot of ground today. Um, this is probably the most notes I've ever at least preached on a weekend with, um, but we've just got so much to hit today. So having said that, let me just pray and we'll jump right into it. God, we do thank you for the words that we hold in our hand. And I don't say that lightly. You didn't have to write this to us. We don't deserve these words. But yet in your grace and in your mercy, you pursue us, though we don't deserve it. And Father, you will speak to us. I ask that we tune out all distractions, alerts on our phones or things we got going on this afternoon. May we realize the weight of this moment, gather together with brothers and sisters to hear from dad. May we submit to your word and approach this in humility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of scripture zooms into Matthew chapter five, we find ourselves back up on that hill. It wasn't long ago that we had some, some elbow room, you know, some room to relax and have like a little picnic as we hear Jesus teach. But now the people really press into here. We're shoulder to shoulder. We're smashed, but in silence. And a breeze sweeps over the peak of the hill, cutting through the crowd, making the heat just a, a little bit more bearable. And the religious leaders down at the bottom of the hill, they can't help but notice the massive gathering on the hillside. It's a far greater number than what they're used to in their synagogue, even on a holiday. These are only numbers that they dream of, of having, stirring in them an envious distaste for the man sitting on the rock doing the teaching. Like, what is it about him? That massive crowds will brave the heat to hang on every word. Each face on the hill would give you a different answer, but one answer would be the captivating mercy within Jesus' teaching. See, the Jewish families on the hill, they've grown up in religion. They've gone to synagogue school, gone to synagogue worship, memorization of scriptures, a beautiful part of their culture. But much of their interaction with their faith is very rule-driven. They're Pharisees, the rabbis, the teaching was very much bent toward, toward justice, hardline justice. The crowd knows that Yahweh is a God of mercy. It's all throughout the Torah. They, they've read it as children. They memorize the verses. Yahweh's merciful. Yahweh's merciful. But they haven't felt that mercy lately. To add to that, their religious leaders in town are not examples of mercy, very driven by rules. So yet to have this man teaching, this man sitting on the rock, he pulls no punches as he talks. He's extremely practical. At times, he's very harsh. He's very strict on the rules, even more strict than the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders. Yet despite all of that, he teaches with a mercy, a mercy that feels foreign to them, but it draws them in. Like we know God is merciful. We haven't felt it, but are we seeing it? Are we hearing it right now? And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. I think at this moment, heads would have popped up. Merciful, mercy. These are trigger words in Galilee during this time. Is God merciful? That's the big question. Is God actually merciful? Now the school answer to that is absolutely. It'd be a terrible heresy to say no. It's almost heretical to even ask the question if God is merciful. Of course God is merciful. Some of the very first words out of their mouths as children were the mercies of God. Every Saturday, the synagogues would read of the God of mercy. They know that God is merciful. They're just not sure they feel it. Mercy is a bit confusing to you when you serve a God of mercy who allows you to live under severe oppression. So this whole idea of mercy, there's some tension with it. 
But it's solved when we dig a little bit deeper. So that's what I want to do. I want to dig a little deeper in this verse. To start off, we'll just ask the question, what is mercy actually? Is it grace? There's an old saying that my grade school teacher taught me that has stuck with me ever since. And I still remember Mrs. Lervick saying it. She's gone now. Rest in peace. I loved her. Scary, scary old Norwegian woman. Uh, she, would, she would throw a book, and she did this a few times. If I was like daydreaming in class, she would throw a book across the room and hit me in the, hit me. she had good aim, but she, she was the best. For Christmas one year, she gave me a pocket knife. And you can't get away with that nowadays, you know. <laughs> Teacher gives student pocket knife and throws a book at him, but she was just the best. Uh, anyways, I can, still, I can still see her writing this phrase up on the chalkboard. She said, she wrote, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now we can look at that and be like, all right, well, that, still seems a little similar, similar to me. Well, the difference actually does matter theologically. So what's the difference between these two? Think about it like my daughter. My daughter was in soccer and she was a terrible soccer player. Probably one of the worst soccer players I've ever seen. There was one other girl on the team and they would just pick dandelions during the game and do each other's hair, like during the game, doing each other's hair. But at the end of the year, at the end of the season, my daughter got a trophy. I think she touched the ball twice the whole season, both times on accident but she still got a trophy. And I remember we got in the car and she was just holding that trophy like, like, you know, like it was the Holy Grail. And I looked at her in the rear view mirror and I said, baby, I love you. Uh, you do not deserve that trophy though. You got grace, something you didn't deserve. That's grace. Trophy was grace. She didn't deserve that. Now mercy was her not getting kicked off the team. That's what she deserved. Luckily, daddy was the coach and daddy let her stay on the team, even though she had no idea what was going on all season. So mercy was her not getting kicked off the team. So there's, there's a difference and it does matter theologically. So to put this in terms of our relationship with God, God's grace is a believer receiving salvation. We don't deserve salvation. We can't earn salvation, but through Jesus Christ, we get, sal- we get heaven. We get what we don't deserve. Mercy is believers not going to hell. Or take that a step further, mercy is believers not going to purgatory to purge us of our sin, even though that's something we deserve. Now we deserve suffering. Our sin cuts us off from almighty, holy God, and we deserve separation for all eternity from God. But because of Jesus, we don't get what we deserve. We don't get hell because luckily our dad is creator. He's the coach and he lets us stay on the team. Jesus here, within context of what he's talking about, is specifically speaking of mercy. Happy are those who do not give people what they deserve, for they shall not get what they deserve. Pretty simple. The confusion in all of this really comes in on the application. I would say that at this church, at the bridge, when it comes to counseling sessions, people come in and just needing help with family issues or just navigating things, which, which we love to do. That's, that's why we're a church, we're a community, we help each other out. But one of the main things in, in counseling, um, I would say, is how do we apply mercy in the situation? Hey, I got this going on in my family. What do I do? What does mercy look like? Like, what does mercy actually look like tomorrow morning when you head into the office and you've got that coworker who takes all the credit? What does mercy actually look like in that situation? Or that person who cheats on you? Or that family member who takes advantage of you? What does mercy look like in that situation? Do I protect myself? Do I protect my family? Or do I have mercy? Or how about this? Here's a big one. Does mercy mean you can never fire anyone? You have that employee who's toxic in your workplace and the, 
The longer that they're on the team, the more it looks like you as the boss sanction their incompetence. They're harming the culture of your team. They're harming other people and, and, and their growth. But Jesus says you have to have mercy. So does that mean you have to keep them on? Mm. But then again, like keeping them on isn't merciful to everybody else on the team who has to work with them. So you're not being merciful to them by keeping them. Like, what do you do? Or is it wrong to imprison people? Shouldn't we have mercy on people? But then again, that's not merciful to future victims of repeated offenders. So how does that work? Or think about it this, uh, think about this. Jesus later on makes a whip, goes into the temple and intimidates, like cracks the whip, chases people out of the, terrorizes them. If the temple were, temple were filled with millennials, they'd all have PTSD afterward needing safe spaces. <laughs> so that doesn't seem very merciful. So is Jesus, is he a hypocrite? These are big questions, aren't they? You might be thinking like, I didn't know merciful was this, mercy was this confusing. Yeah, like, G, Junior's a terrible teacher. He's just confusing us all the more. But seriously, does applying this verse mean that you have to be walked on? And the answer to that is sometimes, which really clears things up, doesn't it? So let me pray and we'll get out of here. No, let's, here's what I wanna do. I, I wanna take this deeper. I wanna build a better biblical framework for how mercy is actually applied. And maybe the best way to do that is to tear down the framework we have for mercy right now. So I'm gonna give you a bunch of misconceptions, very, very common misconceptions of what mercy is, and they all go against scripture. These might even save you some future counseling sessions, and I'm giving them to you for free. Look at the mercy in me. Number one, mercy does not enable. It does not enable. Mercy is not enabling. A lot of people will enable and they'll call it mercy. I think we love to redefine words today to just kind of get a pass on things. It will enable somebody and then we'll just say, no, but it's, I'm just being very merciful. We enable children to be disrespectful at school, so we're gonna defend them instead of, instead of work with the teacher. We enable family members who are addicts. We enable gossips by listening to them. And sometimes we'll use the excuse, hey, I'm just having mercy on them. No, biblical mercy does not enable sin. God's mercy with us does not enable sin. You think about the, remember the story of uh, Jesus, so, you know, in the New Testament, there's a woman who's caught in adultery and dragged before Jesus. Jesus doesn't stand there and say, hey, listen, ma'am, don't let them judge you, okay? You do you. I'm merciful, so just don't worry about it. No, he gave her what she didn't deserve, but he also said, go and sin no more. So he addresses the sin as sin. She's publicly out. I mean, she's publicly embarrassed, but there was mercy in what Jesus is doing. So in many situations, this is very important. In many situations, the merciful thing to do is to not enable. To be merciful sometimes doesn't look like you're being merciful. Mercy aims for the long-term benefit of the person and that might hurt on the front end. Secondly, mercy does not look the other way. Parents, we can often be guilty of this with our kids, you know, when they're little and, and they're cute. We can just kind of laugh at, at their cuteness, you know. They lie. It's like, oh, it's a, they lied. You know, it's so cute. Or, you know, they're throwing a tantrum. It's like, oh, but they're just kind of cute. That's not mercy. That's just bad parenting. That's, that's not mercy. That's looking the other way. And God doesn't do that with us. God doesn't look the other way on our sin. That's why he sent Jesus, so that he could, we could be seen through Jesus. So God does not look the other way on our sin. Instead, we're seen through, this is why Jesus came, so that we could be seen through the blood of Jesus. God does not look the other way. Or think about the story of Zacchaeus. You know the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. 
Anybody else had to sing that growing up? The worst song ever. Little guy, you know, he's exploiting big soldiers to defraud money out of other people. I mean, really what he was is a mafia boss because he had racketeering going on. But Jesus had mercy. Went to Zacchaeus' house. He called Zacchaeus on his sin. He had mercy, but he did not look the other way. And if you think about it, in fact, Zacchaeus still had consequences. Zacchaeus gave back four times what he took. So after Jesus's merciful visit to his house, Zacchaeus was a much, 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 much poorer man. There were still consequences. There were still making things right. But mercy doesn't look the other way. It calls sin, sin. It doesn't give the person everything they deserve, but addresses the sin and even allows there to be healthy consequences. Uh, next, mercy does not compromise. This is a huge one. I just want to hit this hard. In fact, we're going to hit this um, next week as well. This is a big deal. But mercy does not compromise. Um, this happens quite a bit in conflict resolution. Whether there's like a, a problem in your office, you know, between you and a coworker, or maybe within your family, marriage, dating, between friends, maybe even like within church, you know, and there's like an issue. It's like, okay, let's get together and let's talk about what happened. And what, what often happens is people will, be, will see merciful as let's just meet halfway. That's the merciful thing, right? Let's just both compromise. And sometimes that's healthy. It's like, hey, you want this, I want this. Let's just, you know, let's get creative. Great, that's awesome. But often it's not healthy. And I see it all the time. Two people are in conflict and people will think, hey, it's merciful to think, you know, both people are probably wrong here. You know, there just needs to be compromise. I had a buddy of mine tell me that um, about a, a separate issue. It was like a, not even, you know, within this community, but, but separately. And, and there's an issue between two people and one was absolutely in the wrong. But in the name of niceness, the, the, he said, you know, well, you know, both are probably wrong and, and need to compromise. It's like, no, bro, that's terrible. Like, I hate the saying, you know, well, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. No, often people are just wrong. Often people are in sin. And if we operate as if ah, the show is truth in the middle, that's a great way for the enemy to gain ground. All the enemy would have to do is then oppose what's right. And then in the name of niceness, we're all going to compromise. And now the enemy just gained, gained ground. So mercy is not compromising. Jesus was greatly opposed by religious leaders, by pagans, sometimes by his own followers, but he never budged. Now he was merciful, but he didn't budge. So you can be merciful and still stick to your guns. Say, no, this is what's right. I can't move from here, but we can talk about this in a very merciful, merciful way. So you still see justice, what's right, but in mercy. Uh, one more, mercy does not remove boundaries. Mercy doesn't remove boundaries. Especially if you're dealing with an addict or a situation with abuse, you can and still should have boundaries as you deal in a merciful way. But here's the hard part with that. To extend mercy, you must be somewhat vulnerable. You can't extend mercy without being vulnerable. You just can't happen. But there can still be some safeguards and boundaries in place. So for example, Jesus served crowds, but he always had, he had crowd control and he would often retreat. Healthy boundaries create healthy relationships. That's a good thing for some of us to understand. Healthy boundaries create healthy relationships. You can be merciful, somewhat vulnerable, but still have some boundaries set in place. In fact, you, you should, it's wise to have that. So now that we've torn down all the misconceptions, let's reconstruct what mercy is biblically. Mercy does believe the best. This is one of our staff values at the bridge. We say it all the time, believe the best, believe the best. Let's believe the best. I was talking to a couple counselors who do marriage and family counseling, and they said something really interesting. It took me by surprise. They said 75% of our job is teaching couples to just start believing the best about each other. 
If married couples would just believe the best about each other, 75% of their problems would disappear. In fact, we might not even have jobs because we struggle to believe the best. Like I would say the healthiest marriages that I see where I look at them like, they have a fun marriage. It's they're just believing the best about each other constantly. But that's not our tendency. We judge motives, we tell ourselves stories, we assume, we often believe the worst. It's why there's some situations just kind of live rent free in our head because we're kind of filling in, you know, we're filling in the, the gaps and we're just telling ourselves stories. Now, personally, we want to be around people who believe the best about us. We actually gravitate toward people who believe the best about us. But the more we get to know each other and the closer we get, the harder it is to believe the best about each other. Mercy actively works hard to believe the best. It doesn't justify the sin. It doesn't excuse the sin. Mercy will say this happened and it can't, but I'm gonna go into the situation believing the best about that person. That I am dealing with somebody who is loved by God and maybe they had right intentions. Maybe they didn't even know that this happened, but this still needs addressing and I'm just gonna go into it with that frame of mind. That's huge. That's a merciful approach. A second, mercy does engage the mess. Mercy is messy. Mercy is sometimes illogical and it requires vulnerability. It's why some of us really struggle with mercy because it requires vulnerability. It's messy. To seek justice but love mercy is a messy pursuit. This is one of my struggles with this, with this whole text is like, and you know, combing through this is like, I would love nothing more than to stand up here as a pastor and be like, hey, I got you. I got a formula on mercy. Just do this formula, apply this to that relationship or work or whatever, and you're good, then you're merciful. You can't. There's no like formula. There's no one size fits all. Some situations require a lot more consequences for lessons to be learned. Some situations require less consequences. It's just messy. This is probably one of the biggest conversations that Nicole and I have um, about you know, with our girls as far as parenting. It's like, Nicole, you know, how much mercy here? Do they need to feel more consequences on this one? I, you know, each girl is different, different situations, different patterns. Mercy is messy. And this is why the religious leaders during Jesus's time really struggled with mercy. Because like some of us in this room, the religious leaders were bureaucrats. Hey, we dot our I's, we cross our T's, keep it clean and tidy, policy, 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 logical and fair policy. And while Jesus lived by the policies, he also engaged in the messy activity of mercy and he got messy for it. You think about it, Jesus had a reputation for being a drunkard and a glutton. If you're around here today, some of us would maybe even confront him. Hey, you know, people think you're a glutton and a drunkard because of who you're hanging out with. He wasn't a drunkard or a glutton. He's called a friend of prostitutes. His image at times was embarrassing all because he was merciful and that is messy and mercy costs you. To be merciful, you have to eat some of their cost. To be merciful requires vulnerability. You can't extend mercy without being a bit vulnerable. It's I'm gonna extend mercy right here and it might come to bite me later. I'm still gonna have some boundaries here. I'm still gonna call the sin, sin, but I'm gonna open up myself for more potential hurt. It might cost me, but I'm going to be merciful. Not because I want to, but because this is what Jesus did and does for me. Is that you? Some of us really struggle to extend mercy because we don't like being vulnerable. This is my problem, not to get too like counseling session on you, but there are times where I just, I don't want to extend mercy because I don't like being vulnerable. I don't like that feeling. And so I'm gonna, you know, put up all my safeguards. 
But if we claim to follow the one who laid on the cross naked, we must accept his, at time, his, his call at times to be vulnerable in our extension of mercy. We don't have a choice in the matter. Well, before we call it a quick mercy test, it's a little litmus test, if you will. And I know so many notes. I hope you'll have mercy on me, but I do think that this, I do think that this really does, uh, does matter. A little mercy test to see how you're doing on this. Can you take a hit without swinging back? This is why Jesus says in verses 38 to 42, if somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. Be vulnerable and okay with possibly being hurt again. Open yourself up a little bit to be hurt again. If somebody takes your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Give them what they don't deserve. Is that something you can do? When someone's slandering you, this is where I really struggle. Slandering, accusing, taking advantage. It's like, I got to set the record straight. I got to get the truth out there. Or somebody's posting stupid things on social media and you're like, I'm going to fix that. Can you take a hit without swinging back? I'll never forget. I was, uh, it was a while back. There was, this was years and years ago um, when I was uh, younger and maybe more, a little bit more inexperienced, but there, there was somebody who was mad at, at our church. Um, go figure. Somebody gets mad at church. You know, that never happens. But um, this, this created like this big ordeal, lots of talking, lots of stories, lies, slander, social media, you know, so much false information. I sat in a room with a few leaders just kind of talking to like, hey, what do we do? Like, this is false, this is false, this is false. Like, how do we get the truth out there without hurting the family, you know, that of the person who's, you know, making all these accusations? My dad stopped the meeting and he said, let's not complicate this. Let's not hurt the family and let's not fight this. Let's just take a punch on the nose and keep doing what God has called us to do and just stay on track. I was like, come on, that's the dumbest thing I heard, dad. Like, put me in, Kimasabi, like tag me in. I, let me loose, I, I, I can fix this. It's like, all right, Scrappy, just calm down. Take a punch, turn the other cheek, and don't let the sting distract you from the greater calling. Because sometimes the enemy just wants to distract you with the sting. Sometimes it really does come down to this. And I, and I know you don't want to hear this, but it is true. Are you going to fight back? Or are you going to fight the good fight? Because there are many, many moments where you're just going to have to choose between the two. Am I just going to go all out war, protect myself, fight this? Or am I going to hold on to the calling that God has put on my life to fight the good fight, to do what's right, and to, to maybe eat this one? take a punch on the nose and just keep moving. To be candid with you, I have not been great at this. Now I'm getting better. <laughs> I'm learning. But this is tough. Where are you at? Second question. Do you draw conclusions without the full story? No, never. That would be silly. None of us would do that. Now, come on, we do it all the time. I can, especially if it's a buddy I like. Oh, I'm the worst at this. Somebody, you know, a buddy comes to me and, and they tell me that something that happened to him at work, you know, and I'm ready to go to battle for him. Hey, it's like, I can't believe they said that. The boss said that to you? I'll let me go into the office with you Monday. I'll, I'll go in with you. And my conclusion is like, well, your big bad boss is bad. That leadership is weak. You know, that organization is toxic. And I come to a conclusion on it all because a friend told me a partial, obviously slanted story. And yet I'm going to come to a conclusion. I'm not the only one who does that, am I? No, because I love my buddies. You love your friends. The merciful don't operate that way. In fact, the merciful often don't even need the full story. 
Often the merciful just say, it doesn't involve me. There's far more to the story and I don't need to be part of it. So I'm not going to engage in the drama of it. But if it does involve me, I'm going to have conversations instead of draw conclusions. And some of us are really good at telling ourselves stories. We spend a lot of time doing that. Oh, that happened because of that. And I bet they think that. And I bet they're going to do that. And then we just start filling in all the gaps in the story. And suddenly we're making conclusions on people, on situations, on churches, on leadership, on on organizations based on a story riddled with discrepancies, slanted sides, and we filled in the gaps. That's dangerous because Jesus, this is what Jesus gets at in chapter seven, verse one and two. He says, stop judging because the measure by which you judge, you will be judged. That's a scary verse for me. Jesus saying, you wanna go throughout life living severe? you're gonna meet a severe judge one day. Like literally the gavel you use in this life on situations and on people, one day you'll stand before God, God's gonna grab that gavel from you and say, okay, now I'm gonna use this one on you. Which kind of makes you rethink how you're using the gavel in this life, doesn't it? Then third question, last. Is there someone you've written off? They can just never win with you. And anything they do to you, it's just, the motivation is wrong. It's like, ah, they just want attention. Ah, I don't know, it's probably in it for themselves or something they're doing here that's off. And it kind of feels good, you know, when you find something on them, they just can't win with you. Maybe it's a boss. They did or they do something that just grates on your nerves. And so you jump on that train of, to find anything that they do wrong because it justifies your feelings about them. This is why we look for things on people. It's like, I just wanna justify my sin, my feelings on them. So I'm just gonna look for things. And anything I find, I'm just, it's gonna make me feel better. Oh, found that. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's an in-law. Maybe it's a coworker. But we write people off. And I agree with you. They probably deserve it. They hurt you. They took advantage of you. They're not fair with you. They might even do it again if they could. They might deserve for you to write them off. But what is mercy? Mercy never writes anyone off. There's boundaries, yes. There's truth, yes. There are consequences, yes. Maybe there's even some separation, but mercy never writes anyone off. Mercy hopes for the best. The problem is instead of hoping for the best, we tell ourselves stories and then we look for evidence to prove our story. And that's dangerous. According to Jesus, man, if you go throughout life just writing people off, how's that gonna look on judgment day when you stand before the judge who's gonna use that gavel on you? Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And the more you sit in these words, the more you meditate on these words, the heavier they weigh. Like Jesus isn't playing around. The measure by which you judge, you will be judged. And if you look at this, it's almost, it almost seems like an unmerciful verse on mercy, doesn't it? A little bit. Like you will get what you deserve if you give people what they deserve. Ooh, now that's, that's a serious verse. It's probably one of the more heavier verses in scripture. Why? Because to boil it all down, I mean, yes, we got into a lot of notes here, but to boil it all down, this is the gospel. If you claim to follow Jesus, Jesus Christ, you are a living, breathing trophy of his mercy. But what good is a trophy of mercy if the trophy of mercy goes off writing people off and judging situations and coming to conclusions? Living severe. That's no trophy. 
This is what it is to follow Jesus. This is no cute verse. It's quite the opposite. This right here is a call to that dreaded person who just can't win with you. This is a call to get messy, to be somewhat vulnerable and to walk into future potential pain. This is a call to stop coming to conclusions. This is often a call to just saying, I'm out of this. I'm not even in that story. Yeah, there's boundaries, there's wisdom, there's justice, but at the end of the day, mercy is going to hurt sometimes. But let's remember, it hurt Jesus a whole lot more. And to follow him is to walk into that pain and that mess sometimes. Gator Bowl, 1978. Ohio State versus Clemson. Some of you might remember this game. With less than five minutes left on the clock, Ohio State was trailing 17-15, but they had the ball with the opportunity to score. Unfortunately, the Ohio State QB after marching down the field, threw an interception to the defensive nose tackle. The nose tackle, now the hero of the bowl, ran out of bounds near the opposing coach, Coach Woody Hayes. Woody, being fiery, came barreling down the sideline, ran over and threw a punch at the nose tackle. Big scuffle ensued. Players were holding their coach back from throwing more punches. And Ohio State walked into their locker room visibly upset. Not so much by the loss, but more by how their coach handled the situation, the embarrassment of it. Coach was immediately fired. And the media, of course, had a field day. Investigative reporting stepped in on how toxic Woody Hayes is. This is when former players then will come out of the woodwork. You know, former players who didn't get the playing time they wanted or coach said something they didn't like. And now they're going to be able to air their grievances to the hungry investigative reporting. And it all went down. And the disgraced Woody Hayes retreated from the spotlight, secluded himself, and the Hayes family was set to live in infamy. That is until Coach Landry got involved. Coach Landry is one of my favorite coaches. Coach of the Dallas Cowboys, beloved coach. He's a committed Christian. Polar opposite of, of Woody Hayes. See, Woody was fiery, charismatic, had a temper, could work a room. Coach Landry was more quiet, chill, even keeled, hard to read, but also hard to rattle. At the end of the same football season, Coach Landry was invited to a very prestigious banquet with other sports figures, other celebrities, very big, bougie event. Normally, Landry would appear at this banquet with his wife in his arm, just like everybody else at that event. But this time, Landry didn't show up with his wife. Instead, Tom walked in the door with none other than the disgraced Woody Hayes. Silence fell on the room as they walked in. And the dirty looks, they were shot. Later, when asked why he did what he did, Landry said this, and I quote, Well, I figured since everyone else was beating up on Woody, someone needed to show him something different. Landry still took a hit from the investigative journalism his image suffered. How could you align yourself with a person like this? Yet still, Tom's extension of mercy helped lift Woody Hayes out of his shame, and that act of mercy silenced his tormentors. I love that story. And I'll tell you why. Because the exact same thing happened to me. I lost my cool, and I threatened to key a guy's car. I said terrible things 
I've been incredibly selfish. I've followed my desires. I've embarrassed myself over and over and over again. I've walked away from my creator and I deserve nothing short of hell. The same one who sat on the rock on that hillside that one day and said these words also went to the cross so that I could walk in with him into the greatest banquet ever. I deserve shame, but I'm invited to history's greatest party because I'm his plus one. His mercy is the only thing that lifts me from my shame and silences my tormentors. This is the gospel. This is what it is to follow Jesus Christ. And it feels a little illogical. You think about it. The apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he murdered. Families who were murdered by him cheered for him as he came into heaven. That's the gospel. That's how the gospel works. It's mercy. And those who embrace the cross of Jesus bleed that mercy. Is that you? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so we ask ourselves, so what? As we often do, we come into God's word and like, okay, God speaks. Jesus is clear. How does this change our week? How does this change the mercy that we extend? And we're going to, in a second, go into a time of just confession there's some people, some situations that you've written off, that you've came to conclusions on, and that needs confession to God. But also some time for commitment. Like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this different. I also realize that this can be a very difficult topic. Anytime we talk on mercy or forgiveness at church, we tend to get, not like bad emails, but just people saying, this is really hard for me. I have this going on and it's, it's, it's killing me. It's been going on for decades. And, I don't know how to extend mercy in the situation. I get it. I, to be candid with you, these past two months have been tough. I've been hurt a few times, probably more in these past two months than I, in the last year. It's been a rough two months. And so I, you know, I open up God's word here and it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I get it. But this is what it is to follow Jesus. I have been forgiven of so much. I have been given so much mercy. How can I read this and go, I don't want to do this. God meets us there. He says, okay, we got to take that step. What's it going to look like? So the question I, I want to toss your way as, as we go into this time of, of reflection is who needs your mercy? And my guess is a face already came to mind. My guess is a situation already came to mind. Who is it for you? Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus Christ, the living example of your word. We thank you that Jesus didn't just say these words and call us to them, but he did the hardest. We thank you for your mercy. Father, may we each day grow in our knowledge of the mercy that you extend to us and may that change us. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, we're just going to go into that time of corporate reflection right now. It's time between you and God, just the two of you, to make some of those confessions, make some commitments. 
thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.